double XFM 98.3. People-powered radio in Canberra since 1976. Now in our fifth decade and still going strong with your support. Visit 2XFM.org.au to listen online and find out how to subscribe, donate, sponsor, or become involved as a volunteer at your community station. That's a really cool promo, that one. I, it is, I really yeah. like that one. It's um, very classy sound, the yeah, background music. it is. It's, All right. It's saxophone. Welcome, uh, listeners at Radio Land. Um, and this week's uh, edition of News from the Drug War Front. My name is Jeff, and my co-presenter, as uh, usual, is Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Jeffrey, and good morning, listeners. I think my microphone's kind of dropping down a, a bit. bit wonky, and it's uh, tightening up on the... Yeah, maybe I need to tighten up a screw or two. Ain't that always the case? (laughs) Good morning, everybody, anyway. It's cool out there. So, as usual, I'll give you our radio report, our weather report. Stay in bed. Um, A big shout-out to Jules, too, this morning. I had a, um, a chat to a friend yesterday and she happened to be on the phone to Jules at that time. So, and I promised I'd send Jules a shout-out, so... There you go, Jules. You got it. If you're listening, very nice. I've got. Uh, I really do shout outs, but I've got one um, for a peer friend from Antwerp in Belgium. Yes, yes, that's a, and that's great. You were really nice about that, Jeffrey. I'm amazed that um, he's a lovely fellow. Unfortunately, uh, he's fallen on hard times, um, as we do. And his mum's just recently passed away. Oh, that's sad. And his own health. Doesn't sound like it's going too well. He's lost 10 kilos. He's been to a hospital for tests and he's having some other GP tests. So just tried to buck him up um, with a small amount of money and just to yeah. hope you're going well. And That was nice of you, Jeffrey. but it took a long time to get there, didn't it? took a long yeah. time. I was starting to get really worried that it wasn't going to get there. I wonder if maybe it took him a bit longer to respond rather than took longer to get there. Do you know what I mean? It might, he might have been... In hospital or something and not... That's possible. And then maybe not able to get back to you. Well, look, people tell me um, transferring money is the easiest thing on earth um, to do. Yeah. Um, but when it came to actually showing me how to do it... But actually, anyway. <laughs> didn't, didn't actually manage it? I end up um, going back to the old tried and true... Um, stick it in the mail. Stick it in the mail. And yeah. it, got, it got there, which is really lovely. Okay. Okay, so uh, welcome listeners to this uh, week's edition of News from the Drug War Front. It's brought to you by Karma the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, and also The Connection, which is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. News from the Drug War Front promotes um, the wide array of services that are provided by Karma and The Connection, and we also uh, report on stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from across Australia and also around the world. Um, and that's what we discuss too, Jeffrey. We discuss stuff that we think is relevant to our listeners and hope that we're going to just promote some debate or some thought amongst them and their colleagues and have a, have a talk about this stuff, gang, with each other and with new people that you meet because we need to recruit people too. What's the only Tell way things are going to change? Tell them how we think and why we think that way because the laws have been so damaging for such a long time. It is time they changed. Absolutely. Um, so, yes, uh, as Marianne said, part of the uh, intent of the program is to not just provide news, although that's very important. It's to uh, encourage people to think about 
the war on people who use drugs, um, prohibition, and push their parliamentarians to look at some you know, other options, some yeah, pr- progressive options. That's why we report on so many programs from overseas and how things were in places where you would never imagine would change from absolute abstinence, total abstinence, to harm reduction or service provision or opioid assist treatment or you know, a range of things that make a difference to users' lives other than discriminating against them, which is so rampant and so soul-destroying and people-destroying. Yeah, we can often be surprised. I've been chatting with a, a fellow who's a, um, a peer activist in Ukraine and he was put out a bit disappointed um, a, a post on Facebook just saying the work he's trying to do for people on OST is, of course, it's impacted. It's a war zone and they've, yeah. it's, they've still got illegal drug laws, you know, like most of the rest of the world. Yes. But rather than continuing to impose them, as he said, um, with a war going on and people going off to the front line for their yeah, country. You would think that they would forget about the war on drugs because it's not a not a priority. The war against Russia might have been the priority. I would have thought that should be the priority. Recruit the people that are alienated to... Ukraine the population country. to the country because yeah. they are bright when they are functional, when they have their um, drugs provided or their opioid-assisted treatment, whatever, when their drugs are provided for them, they, they are bright, they are clever, they are cooperative, they contribute to the community, become, you know, and you can bet your boots that they are politically active when they are looked after. Yeah, and I've, yeah. I, I tried to send a supportive message back to Dennis just saying, look, you're doing, you and your colleagues yep. are doing amazing work. It's hard enough doing Under it in a peace, such incredible peaceful circumstances, country, yeah. But, but in, a, in a war zone, in yep. a very nasty war, you know, with um, missiles. Very mean-spirited, yeah, isn't it? Being um, shot at any time of the day or night indiscriminately. It's, it's not easy. And keep your spirits up and... No, yeah, no, you're doing great work. You, Jeffrey. We'll send our love and our support and say, keep going, please don't stop, because we need drug users to stay well, particularly if they perhaps become hep C infected, which would just be, you know, damaging and so easy to do, you know, in such a repressive environment, you know, particularly over in the east side of Ukraine at the yeah, moment. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Anyway, it's, uh, I'll just quickly uh, tell you, Karma and the Connection provide a wide range of services. Um, the office itself is at Level 154 Benjamin Way. The telephone number you can contact them on is 62533643. I'll say that again, 62533643. Contact Karma by phone or drop in between 10am 4pm Monday to Friday general business hours, business days, um, or you can email karma it's at uh, info at karma. This is all one word and, all and small yeah. um, small letters, chma.org.au. And we can help you with advice and advocacy, accessing treatment, um, reach, teach, treat, 
Thrive, is that still going, Jeffrey? Yes. In conjunction with the Hep C Council? We can do the pinprick study. Good, at, that's right. At the, the blood Karma test office. with pin. That's yep. terrific. Which is enormous. Is the vein finder still going Monday afternoon? It's still in operation. It's a great Good piece to of hear kit. it. That's really help, helpful. And I believe that uh, there's been an application hopefully put in to look at the issues facing older injecting drug users. Right. Which I suppose probably a lot of people thought they'd never be older. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> injecting drug users. I remember, Jeffrey. I remember reporting on um, delivering methadone to aged people's home, yeah? And and this was in New York. And this I'm talking 20 years, 30 years ago. And I was actually gobsmacked because it hadn't occurred to me. I'm 70 now, but it hadn't occurred to me that people would still be using, you know, well, when they were in um, or would want to use when they no. would still. And then I thought, sat back and thought, well, why not? Yeah. I still want to. Yeah. That's crazy. Anyway, the point is yeah. that the service provision is for, is not discri- doesn't discriminate you because of your age, sex, yeah. you know, colour. It doesn't matter if you need services and you can't contact them, get in touch with Karma. If you can't do face-to-face or you want to stay anonymous, just ring up and see if you can talk to somebody about what ails you or what affects you and what you want help with. We have plenty of services available, and if they're not immediately obvious, then ring up and find out about them. Exactly. Because we can tell you where they are available. Exactly. I wanted to give you a little bit of information too about the the, uh, PAT van because there have been some changes because of staff shortages, and this seems to be an issue across the board, doesn't it? Always impacts uh, uh, drug users eventually. Well, flu might be an issue. Um. True. Anyway, uh, from now until the 12th of July, there'll be some changes to, uh, occasionally, to the Pat Van's operations. So uh, Friday the 9th of June, Pat Van won't be at Veterans Park. Thursday the 15th, it won't be at Ainsley Village. Tuesday the 20th of June, it won't be at Veterans Park at night. Uh, Friday the 23rd of June, it won't be, uh, there'll be no Pat Van, there'll be depot only and the time will is yet to be confirmed at Oaks Estate. And then Friday the 7th of July, um, the Veterans Park unit won't be there. Tuesday, the 11th of the 7th, Canangra Court will be closed, the Pat Van's um, outreach, and then Wednesday, the 12th of June, the Oaks Estate, no Pat Van Depot only, time to be confirmed. So if you're confused about that, which I, and who wouldn't be, yeah. just get in touch with Karma or Directions, yep. Give 6253 yep. and find out when the Pat Van won't be operating. There's just a few times a week like once a week, it yep. won't be operating. So find but it's out. It's better to know before you head off. Absolutely. And, and well, turning up and and nobody being there, you'll be standing out in the cold. And who wants to be doing that on uh, days like this? No. All right. Uh, might go to our first song. It's actually a request uh, by one of our listeners, Jack. It's the Flaming Groovies, and the name of the song is uh, Slow Death. I'm not familiar with the another, song. Another happy one. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound particularly happy, but we'll give it a go.
All right, that was the flame and Groovies. And it certainly slow was. Slow death, yeah. yeah. That wasn't a slow death, Jeffrey. That no, was a was very a speedy death. Up tempo death. Yeah, it was. All right, uh, just before we go on, I'll just mention that um, news from the Drug War Front reports on um, stories relevant to illicit drug users uh, from Australia and around the world. Many of the articles featured come from other sources, including mainstream media. The contents of this broadcast slash podcast, because it'll be up as a podcast tomorrow, do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not uh, condone nor condemn drug use, and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen, regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development we seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation uh, through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic healthcare. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which, as an ordinary citizen, I don't think is too unreasonable. No, oh, absolutely. I've got this story from WA. Um, I don't have much knowledge of the history of cocaine access and use in Australia, but um, mm. three men have been charged over an alleged plot to smuggle 800 kilos of cocaine yep. into Western Australia. Um, and there's lots of photos of happy-looking police with various packages, but they've seized more than 800 kilograms of cocaine that was destined for Western Australia. I bet they're a lot happier than they look, though, Geoffrey. Actually, you're right. I tell you, page three, they look really quite miserable. Actually, sorry, sombre would be yeah. the expression. Perhaps they're just looking serious. Haven't we yes. done well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are clever. They did describe it as one of the largest hauls of the drug in decades. Details of the joint agency investigation were revealed, which began with a tip-off about an alleged plot to drop the massive cache of drugs with a street value of about $320 million Australian dollars into the ocean for collection sometime in May. Mm. Interesting off. concept, isn't it? The International Drug Syndicate's plan began to fall apart when three men who allegedly set out on a cabin cruiser to retrieve the drugs ran into engine trouble. I remember hearing about this on the on TV, yeah. Keep going. Engine trouble off Rottnest Island on yeah. May the 24th. Following an investigation into bulk cargo vessels in the area at the time, police boarded uh, the merchant vessel ST. Pino, Pino yeah. which had travelled to Western Australia from South America. No. After, after being moved to a berth in Quinana, Navy divers found 29 packages containing one kilo blocks of cocaine on board, which had been submerged in a water-filled ballast tank. Interesting. That doesn't, that doesn't look like 29 packages, does it? Uh, uh, the first picture looks like it's got yeah. huge numbers, like there's two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve plastic. Anyway... Um, significant blow to drug syndicates. CAFP Commissioner Price Scanlon said the detection and arrests came about through cooperation between multiple agencies. Ah, that explains why there's four of them in different uniforms looking sombre. Uh, the quote, the Australian Federal Police, Australian Border Force, West Australian Police Force and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, so that's uh, ASIC, and the Department of Home Affairs. So there's five of them. They're missing one, are they? Four, have combined all of our resources to stop this attempt by organised crime to profit at the expense of our communities, he said. Uh, the Navy goes on. The Navy clearance divers spent more than 90 minutes on board this vessel. 
in a confined space to extract the quantity of drugs from the flooded ballast tank. AFP Assistant Commissioner Price Scanlon says the seizure... Oh, hang on, I've just seen that. Quote, the interception of this amount of drugs would be a significant blow to well-resourced syndicates and prevents millions of dollars of drug profits flowing back to the criminals involved in this drug venture. Assistant Commissioner Scanlon, the next heading is Novices Arouse, Arouse Suspicion... Assistant Commissioner Scanlon said there was already an operation focusing on bulk cargo carriers headed for WA ports when the circumstances surrounding the three men aboard the cabin cruiser aroused suspicions. The vessel, named No Fixed Address, was purchased with cash soon before it allegedly headed out to retrieve drugs before the men had to be rescued due to, quote, engine trouble, end quote. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, our suspicions were heightened somewhat after this vessel started heading out towards that particular vessel and became in distress, the Assistant Commissioner said. There was no transfer of any drugs. Again, a quote, you've got three novices on a boat that have no idea what they're doing, going out to collect drugs, get in distress, and it just heightened our suspicions. Well, you would expect it would, I guess, especially when it's called no fixed address, yeah? Mm. Quote, someone walking in with an amount of cash to pay for a boat and immediately going out towards a shipping vessel is pretty suspicious. Well, I suppose it is if you're thinking that way. The three men, aged 21, 25 and 29, have been charged with attempting to import a commercial quantity of a border-controlled drug. So, 800 kilos. Sorry? 800 kilos is a fair amount, isn't it? Absolutely, decidedly commercial. Two of the men are Perth residents and the other, a Lithuanian national, was arrested in Sydney as he was trying to leave the country. Hmm. A smart man. Assistant Commissioner Scanlon said investigations were continuing and the ship was still being searched and seized devices were being examined. Uh, he said Australians paid high prices for drugs, which made the country attractive to cartels. That was posted on the 2nd of June, yeah. 2023. Well, they're right about that. We do pay um, We high do prices. pay high prices, so that's about what, well, that's well, what they've got right. Before yeah. the news, I might pay, um, it's actually a uh, Pink Floyd song, but it's written by Roger Waters, who was uh, banned from Twitter uh, on grounds of um, by the, by free the speech freedom, by Elon Musk. By the freedom to say whatever you want, Elon Musk. He evidently made some criticisms about um, the treatment of Palestinians and he was uh, banned, but... Um, just in support of him, I thought I'd play um, a track. Wish you were here. Indeed. And discipline remains massively. Yes, and then now would you, Derek, this star nonsense. Yes, yes. Now,
you think you could tell? Heaven from hell, blue skies from pain. Can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? A smile from a veil. Do you think you could tell? Okay, it's about four minutes after 11. Um, I just wanted to mention if people are at all watchers of Al Jazeera, um, which I, as a news junkie, am a supporter and watcher of Al Jazeera, and I happened to see a very interesting part one of a documentary series. Uh, I'm not sure how many episodes there are, but it's called Drug Trafficking, Politics and Power. Um, And the first episode uh, this morning went right back to very early shots of poppy fields in Burma and shots of the sap and the latex, which um, was made into opium as a pain reliever. And it, it sort of ties together the whole imperialism, colonialisation, the Cold War, um, globalisation, and uh, just all the, the context of how 
prohibition of alcohol ended up becoming prohibition of um, a lot of other drugs and then how it became part of the global financial order with um, cartels laundering their profits through um, banks and uh, it just becoming a ever-growing uh, gro- business um, from selling illicit drugs, prohibition, yeah. yeah. It is. So... Um, Look, it's available on to watch on your phone or on your tablet um, on Al Jazeera, um, so you can catch up with it if you, you know, missed it this morning. Um, there was some interesting things. I tried to take a few notes. They said at one point opium was called the gift from the gods. Indeed. Which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. And, and uh, it is, Jeffrey. I mean, so naturally, you know, I mean... <laughs> It's a naturally occurring substance, like THC, if you like, yeah. or marijuana, and it's been used for millions of years for pain relief. Um, they used to give it to the aged of the, you know, the wise old people in the community because it was like a um, compensation for a life well lived, and Indeed. because they used to sit down and look after the kids and sprout. Uh, Words of wisdom at them. And a hard life working in the fields. Absolutely. And And after all that time and all that pain, um, yes, why not be provided with something like opium, which would certainly uh, warm the cockles of your heart, if not uh, your brain. One of the things that um, I got out of watching this program this morning was um, the context of the the opium wars that were, you know, Great Britain and China. And um, China actually this time, um, refused all free trade. They didn't actually require or want to buy anything. They were happy to sell China and porcelain overseas, but they didn't want to get involved in free trade. But um, as part of building the the empire uh, and British greed, the Crown gave smuggling to private traders, not the government, to um, make money out of opium. Oh, indeed, but nonetheless, and they paid um, some kind of, their priority in, in a, a, a tax, in inverted commas, to the, the realm. Indeed. And um, it just, yeah, it, it just talks about how it then um, spread to Shanghai and then New York and just some really interesting, interesting things. And um, But isn't that how America got opened up to? It was actually Francis Drake was employed by Queen Isabella of Spain and sent to find another way to the east and, you know hauled up in the Bahamas accidentally and then Walter Raleigh went a bit further, sent by Elizabeth and hauled up in, uh, in the, on the east coast of the United States and then discovered the tobacco and brought that back for everyone. You know, it's actually yeah. quite a... It starts off as a, a journey on behalf of a monarch and ends up with a, a, a cash crop, if you like, or something that popular. can provide... Um, money to the coffers of the of the regime or the rulers, um, and always a popular move, really. Even though it's not a government issued trip or sponsored trip, but it ends up becoming a government admired trip, <laughs> if you like. Yeah, there's a, it's it. I was listening to a song downstairs, Jeffrey called "It's a Long Time Coming, but a Change Is Going to Come." Do you remember? That's I do a remember very that old one. Song. Yeah, it's a good one. Beautiful song, but it means such a lot to us too. Yeah. Not only to the Black Movement. Where is that change? Yeah. Yes. 
But, um, yeah, it really gives some context into that whole um, Chinese Opium Wars. Mm. And they said there were 30 million um, people, they said, addicted to opium in 1906. And uh, this is in China. Yeah, and in 1909 yep. uh, was the first um, international opium conventions to prohibit it by the US. All oh, right, yeah. And then they go into the um, Corsican Mafia that, that was the... Where it, who took it over? From Marseille, remember the French Connection? I do, and, yes. And that movie. So it really... Um, and it also included a, a guy who... The first book I ever read about the politics of the drug war, he's, he's an American um, historian, went to the... Golden Triangle at the age of 26 to do his postgraduate thesis. And, and he had fun? Didn't come back? <laughs> he just did research. He met, yes. met the hill tribes that were growing it to get money, you know, money. And the CIA, of course, were involved when the Vietnam War started course, uh, after the, yeah. the French left. And so how, how heavily was his book um, edited and by whom before it came out? I, like, did he give a... Um, a political an, uh, assessment of what was going on or did it give a personal assessment? I remember hearing him um, give an interview about that book and saying he had a, quite a battle with the CIA I bet he did. in redacting um, certain what things. What bits were to be redacted and what wasn't, yeah. The things that implied that the CIA was might involved. actually be involved, mm. which they weren't too keen about. But but look, anyway, it's um, well worth watching. I think I'll um, post it on the um, Facebook page. With the name of it or the article? Um, well, the should, name of the book should, you're talking about or the article that you saw? Well, it's, it's just a the Al Jazeera 45-minute um, video okay. um, yep. called Drug Trafficking, Politics and Power, episode yes. one. But very, oh, look, I've very found it's intriguing. The whole, the whole, the depth of it, Jeffrey, has been going for such a long time. I mean, we think 1961, but that's only just since we've been alive. Goes you know, back a long when way. you're talking about 1909, you're actually talking about the time when women were being given laudanum for period pain or waking up in the morning with a presentiment. And listeners will know that I've blurbed about this many times. They talk about that? And they wake up in the morning with a presentiment, which is either a premenstrual tension or just feeling not a bit off that day or having a migraine. A presentiment covers a multitude of sins, but they'll prescribe, not prescribe, sorry, given laudanum because you could buy it over the counter. Yeah, it wasn't uh, a real problem. Anywhere. It wasn't an issue. You had pain. We and had it ways certainly of shut with them it. up. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe the women who were involved in the suffragette movement just didn't have laudanum because they clearly weren't satisfied with their lot. But for good reason, they had a tough lot in the old days. Well, it does show how a lot of where we've ended up was by accident, uh, colonialism, yep. uh, empire building, racism, you know, yep. uh, calling it marijuana, linking it to Mexicans, yes, uh, linking opium to Chinese opium dens yep. and, you know. And and the the, imi- the graphic images they used to put up were always of older Chinese men smoking opium pipes, yes? Indeed. Yeah, so very political, the way they graphically represented those who smoked opium and made older Chinese men look evil. Yes, that, that was, was the very, whole part of it. Yeah. yeah, it was a very strong thing. But, yeah, very, a very, very good show. Okay, um, you're going to read a story from... Uh, yes, this was actually the first one we meant to do, Jeffrey, and I don't remember whether I did it or not, but it's a terrific story. It's called Junkies, Sluts and Feminist, Where Are We in the Witch Legacy? And this is by Emily Arnold. Um, I recently watched a lecture from Christian J. Solly, 
from Christian J. Solly on her book, Witches, Sluts and Feminists. I first thought she was preaching to me, the converted, already a feminist academic who appreciates scholarly research into the demonisation of women and our sexuality. What was this, quote, witch feminism, end quote? Why does that sound so appealing? I come from a long line of strong women, and one of who, in whom is rather mysterious with mystical ties. Due to my great-grandmother's magical practices predating the Christian conversion of her entire family, they're well hidden. This is why I found myself hanging off... Is this why I found myself hanging off every word of this lecture? The intrigue? It didn't matter that I was already in the church of the witch brand of feminism. Um... Solly had me covered, or did she? Hang on a minute, where are the junkies? A word I use and personally reclaim. That's why I think I might have done it, Geoffrey. I remember her reclaiming the word junkie. Where are the junkie sluts? Where are the women who use drugs? Why are we not included with these other once offensive female identities? I feel like quote, junkies, end quote, would fit right in with the sluts, feminists and the occult. We are countercultural, thanks to the criminalisation of what we choose to put into our bodies. In fact, I believe we are natural alchemists, practising uh, chemical science as only junkies can. Women who use drugs possess a hidden knowledge much like the witches of Salem or the cunning folk of Britain and other parts of medieval Europe. The craft and crime of a medieval woman was magic. The craft and crime of the modern woman, the knowledge and use of drugs, which can also be magical. What of the sexy witch stereotype, a barely clothed woman expressing female sexuality, riding on a broomstick and exploring sexual pleasure? As women who use drugs, I'm not af- as a woman who uses drugs, I'm not afraid of seeking pleasure. Like the witch, I should not be demonised for wanting satisfaction and gratification. Solly's witches, sluts and feminists guided me through the history of misogyny and demonstrated how witch feminism feeds into contemporary conversations about reproductive rights, sexual pleasure, queer identity, pornography and sex work. Themes addressing for want of a bodily autonomy are themes addressed for want of a bodily autonomy. I would also like governance over my own body. I'd like to be allowed to use illicit drugs legally and as safely as possible, making informed judges uh, choices like that I could make if I want to use a drug deemed licit. A drug like alcohol is fine, but not heroin, not even pot. As much as I could relate to witches, witches, sluts and feminists, I also noticed as a junkie I wasn't there. I didn't see myself. Prior to discovering witches, sluts and feminists, I had just discovered narco-feminism this year. To quote Judy Chang's article, Narco-Feminism, a campaign for the feminist who uses drugs, quote, I am a feminist. I am a woman who uses drugs. Up until recently, these identities have been mutually exclusive, having rarely been held together in the same conceptual space. End quote. This blew my mind and resonated with me so much. I'd felt like my drug use excluded me from feminist spaces. 
even though empowering and supporting women who use drugs is a feminist action and we should be included in women's spaces and services more and more. I was eager to share the discovery with two of my closest friends and colleagues, both women who use drugs, who work in harm reduction, advocacy and advocacy, activism, sorry. The three of us are self-confessed narco-feminists now. I've even been referring to our group emails, chats and catch-up visits as the coven. Like all feminist spaces, we belong too. Special thanks to all the junky, slutty feminist witches out there. You're all my heroes. Thanks for your good work. Yeah, well, we're going to um, try and uh, call, put a call out for more um, stories from uh, women, um, personal stories, so that would be really good. I've got a quick track which I promised to play. It's the Dandy Warhols, and not if you were the last junkie on earth. And huh. it's on uh, CD number two.
apologies for that. The CD number one with the Dandy Warhols wasn't in the sleeve, but that was CD number two of the Lars with uh, There She Goes. There She Goes, yeah. Anyway, it's 21 past uh, 11, and we've got a story story about Narcan or Naloxone, which comes from a medical website from the States. And this is an interview with um, uh, Kelly Ramsey, the uh, Chief Medical Services at the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Support in Albany. Well, the good thing about this is she says, if you administer naloxone, also known as Narcan, to a patient experiencing an apparent opioid overdose and it doesn't seem to be working, should you give more? Not necessarily, according to Kelly Ramsey, MD, Chief of Medical Services at the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports in Albany. Adding a second dose of naloxone because, quote, it can't hurt is just one of many myths surrounding the overdose reversal medication, said Ramsey, who is also a member of the American Society of Addiction Medicine Board of Directors, but did not speak on its behalf. Jeez, I'm worried about that already. Um, I mean, you wait, wait a while, but... I don't think you'd say don't give a second dose. If no, it's I, not think they're, I think they're. I've read through this article, Jeffrey. It's more about don't just give more and more and more okay. and more and more because you'll end up throwing people into withdrawals. And that doesn't actually really come out in this interview, but okay. it should be kept in mind. So keep going. Good. Uh, Ramsey spoke with the MedPage Today uh, website and explained several misconceptions about naloxone as well as how to make sure it's been used properly. The following transcript of the interview at which uh, a press person was present was edited for length and clarity. Med page today. Well, thank you for being with us today. Can you start by explaining what are the myths that are surrounding resistance um, to naloxone? Mm -hmm. Kelly Ramsey, MD. There's confusion around how to use naloxone and also an under-recognition of polysubstance use and polysubstance overdose. And that is unfortunately conflated with the concept of certain substances being, quote, naloxone resistant. Well, some things are. Well, they are because they're not opioids, yeah? Well, they're not going to do anything if you've drunk a lot of alcohol. That's right. Or if it's a benzodiazepine, which well known for, you know, the combination will... Opioids, opioids only. Yeah. Yep. We're in the era of very highly potent synthetic opioids, and whichever opioid we're talking about, whether it's fentanyl and its analogues or any of the family of nitazine analogues, all of those are responsive, responsive to naloxone. Well, that's good to know, though. We've not seen in data that if someone, for example, is using heroin and needs to be revived with naloxone or they're using a combination of heroin and fentanyl or just using fentanyl or its analogues, that they're actually requiring additional naloxone. We're not seeing high milligram dosages needed to reverse that overdose. So why are people thinking that we do need more? A lot of it is down to anecdotal reports. I think there are probably a couple of different things going on. One is that probably emergency medical service personnel and other first responders need more education around polysubstance overdose because only the opioid component of an overdose will respond to naloxone. And that that should have been underlined, Jeffrey. That's a really important sentence. Crucial. Uh, If you expect... If you give a dose of naloxone, you wait the full two minutes and the person is not responding as expected... And the response should be normalisation of breathing. It should not be that someone wakes up and is walking and talking. You really should be pivoting and thinking, quote, this is a polysubstance overdose and I need to do other manoeuvres in order to reverse the overdose situation. End quote. 
MPT. Did you say people wait should wait for two minutes after the first dose? Ramsey, yes, and I think that's another problem. Two minutes is a long time when you're in a crisis, so people aren't waiting the full time and they're giving an additional naloxone, dose after dose after dose. They're not giving it a chance to work. MPT, so if the first dose doesn't work, then what? So Ramsey says, so it's suppose it's a designer, benzodiazepine, or it's xylazine. That's going to add another sedative component to an overdose, but none of those are opioids, so they're not going to respond to naloxone. Then you want to think about, quote, what do I need to support to do to support this person's breathing efforts? So if you're a first responder who doesn't have access to any equipment, you'd want to do a head tilt chin lift and do rescue breaths. Start that process while you're active activating triple zero. If you have other ac access to other tools, say you have a pulse oximeter, you can check the person's pulse oximetry and see if the oxygen level is falling again, which would be another indication to give the person oxygen if you have that on hand, or to use a bag valve mask to breathe for that person. Sometimes folks who have polysubstance overdose may have multiple sedatives on board and they may need to be intubated or they may need to have ventilator assistance. But continuing to give naloxone is not going to do anything in that situation because you've already addressed the opioid component. What are the downsides of giving someone too much naloxone? And Ramsey says, when you give an opioid antagonist like naloxone to someone who's physiologically dependent on opioids, it is going to precipitate opioid withdrawal. It's not a benign process. The more naloxone you give to somebody who is physiologically dependent on opioids, the more severe the precipitated opioid withdrawal is going to be the longer it's going to last and the more miserable that person is going to be and the more likely that person is going to want to try to reverse that process, process by using more opioids. So really it's a bit of an art in order to use the right amount of naloxone so that you restore breathing, breathing to a more normal rate but you don't precipitate opioid withdrawal. Which is the point you made earlier when I that's right. said don't just keep and that, giving opioids. It opi just um, needs to naloxone. be emphasised, I think, Jeffrey, and that's what you learn in the training, folks. Yep. You, le you learn about polysubstance use and rescue breathing yep. and heart massage so that's the value of doing the training as opposed to the simple intervention doesn't mean don't get the naloxone it means preferably do the training because it's important to know how to do rescue breathing and recognize an opioid recognize um, opioid and overdose. distinguish it from benzodiazepine or alcohol overdose yeah okay the piece goes on to say qualitative studies have been done with individuals who've been administered significant amounts of naloxone 
And we see that people who have been in that situation and had that withdrawal experience, it creates a very negative impression of mm. naloxone for them. Understandably. Well, back in the old days when people were given... Um, a full milligram of naloxone, they'd be thrown straight into withdrawals. Two, yeah, in two milligrams. Yeah. From two Sydney, milligrams. Sydney paramedics Ow. back in the day. Yep. Yes. You can imagine how unhappy people were. I bet. Many of these individuals will not carry naloxone on their person because they don't want it administered to them again. Or they tell their circle of individuals, don't give me naloxone because I don't want that to happen to me again. People can get very sick. Withdrawals are not nice, yeah? No. Opioid withdrawal in most situations will not kill an individual, but it can make you feel like you're going to die, and it can cause severe vomiting and severe diarrhoea in some individuals. So when we pump people full of naloxone, it isn't just benign for the individual who's receiving the naloxone, which is why, like you said, do the training and recognise. That's right. Much better idea. What about emergency physicians and other hospital-based providers? How can they become more aware of the polysubstance issue? And she says it's important that people recognise the very complex, ever-changing and increasingly more dangerous, unregulated drug supply. So when someone comes into an emergency department, doctors need to think really broadly about what substances this individual may have actually been using. When people come in with moon, wounds, think about xylazine. If people are admitted with something related to their substance use and they're not responding to adjunctive medicine, adjunctive medic medications for the treatment of opioid withdrawal syndrome or they're not responding to an initiation of medication for opioid use disorder, think, okay, what else is going on here? Maybe they're experiencing xylazine withdrawal. We need to make sure we're communicating well with people who use drugs. Some people are aware of what they're using because maybe they went to some place where they had access to drug checking. Mm. So they actually know exactly what's in the substances that they're using. That'd be one place in the world, Jeffrey. Yeah, Canberra. can <laughs> Can test. There's the yes. classic reason why we need um, drug test. checking. Yep. yep. But many people won't know what was in the substances, so it's up to the person who's providing healthcare to really think outside the box and think. This isn't going as I would think it should go, so let me pivot and try some other treatments. And really, really we're asking doctors and first responders to do the opposite of what they normally do instead of narrowing it down to one reason why a person might be unconscious. We're asking them to open up and think laterally what else is going on here, which is not a normal practice for them. Anyway, the article goes on, MPT, how can providers and others learn more about how to respond? Well, we would say go to the naltrexone training, the naloxone training, sorry, um, the first Tuesday of every month. But Ramsey says my agency has created a xylazine guidance document, opens in a new tab or window where we talk about how to respond appropriate to polysubstance overdose. That's been shared with all the providers in our system throughout the state. I also have recorded webinar opens, webinar opens in a new tab or window in which I talk also talk about this process of responding to polysubstance overdose. And then we as an agency are completely revamping how we're doing trainings on overdose prevention and intervention. Training got reduced during the COVID-19 pandemic because of the fear around doing rescue breathing. And we also didn't have xylazine widely in the drug supply during early COVID. So during COVID, it's kind of got reduced to just give naloxone, that's your only response. And that's not an adequate response, just not an adequate response. 
says Ramsey. Naloxone is an amazing medication and it's extremely efficacious, but in the face of a more complex overdose situation, it can't be the only tool in your toolbox. Our training got reduced down to just naloxone training, but now we've revamped it as overdose prevention and intervention training, and it covers all different substances and their contribution to overdoses. We talk about alcohol poisoning, we talk about xylazine and other sedatives, and we talk about how all of those can contribute to a polysubstance overdose. And then what are the appropriate responses to each of those substances in the context of an overdose? David does that, Jeffrey, in the training. He actually focuses on, and this is really important for listeners to say, what are the main reasons why people would overdose? And generally it's about drug combinations and that happens because when people come out of jail or out of residential treatment centres or they use for the first time, it is because they already have one substance on board which has reduced their self their resistance, if you like, or their their uh, their capacity to just say, no, I don't really want to do that, probably shouldn't do that on top of already being a little bit pissy or a little bit out of it, or maybe don't even feel out of it because sometimes people don't feel benzodiazepines. But if you combine them, bumper, yep. drop. Well, I'm glad Dave covers all that. So, no, he does that, and it's something... But I'm, I'm pleased to hear they're doing it in the States too, but it is really... Um, something that is covered in the training and I really just say to people, first Tuesday of every month at the um, early morning centre on two at 2 o'clock, get in touch with Dave on 62533643 and book a spot for the training. Yep, no-brainer. Yep. All right, well, we'll play uh, a quick song from the Stones, uh, As Tears Go By, one of my favourites. children play Smiling faces I can see but not for me I sit and watch as tears go by My riches can't buy everything
That was the Rolling Stones as tears go by. It's 23 minutes to noon and you're listening to news from the drug war front brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Home Minimisation and Advocacy and The Connection, which is the, the service co-located for First Nations clients. Look, we may not have time to um, cover this in full, but it's a very important um, issue. We raised it a little bit last week when we were trying to find out if um, heroin-assisted treatment was still happening Available. in, in yeah. Switzerland, and uh, it was good to see that it was. But um, this sort of covers the whole concept of what heroin-assisted treatment uh, was about. Yep. It was the provision of medical-grade heroin, also called diamorphine, to register patients as part of a treatment program. Patients attend a clinic once or twice a day and use their prescriptions on-site under medical supervision. It's normally for people who've had not, not had success with other treatments. HAT reduces health problems. No one overdoses or dies because people are given a carefully measured dose to use. Safer injecting advice, on-site health care, uh, reduce and treat injecting wounds and other health issues. The use of sterile injecting equipment means no infections from needle sharing, including HIV and hepatitis C. Heroin-assisted treatment increases take-up and retention and substantially reduces or eliminates consumption of illegal heroin and acquisitive crime and sex work to fund its use, reducing money going to organised crime, as well as high-risk street injecting and discarded needles. Well, that would probably be fair if there were enough people on the program, Marion. Well, yes, and in fact, this, yeah, it, if we could get to the history of it, it'll be really interesting. This, this is kind of a brief rundown of what's going well, on. Well, you're cracking on... Crack on with the history. Okie dokie. Um, all right. So the, the the UK government supports HAT, for example, in its modern crime prevention strategy, as do its official advisors. Uh, central government funding should be provided to support HAT for patients for whom other forms of opioid substitution treatment have not been affected. That seems like bloody sense to me, but there you go. The history of HAT. Heroin-assisted treatment is well-established internationally, already legal, and has a long history in the United Kingdom. The, quote, British system, end quote, developed following a 1926 Rolleston report that allowed doctors to prescribe heroin to people diagnosed as dependent on it for take-home use, so they would not be buying heroin of unknown strength from the criminal market. Doctors were later required to obtain a specific home office licence, particularly following the introduction of the Misuse of Drug Acts, or MDA, in 1971. This system of take-home prescribing was much reduced with an increasing focus on treatment clinics primarily aimed at making people abstinent. Although some continued to prescribe heroin, for example, the Drug Dependency Clinic of London's University College Hospital, also, uh, one up near Liverpool that I visited that it refers to later on. Taking a more punitive approach under pu underpinned by the MDA uh, was not successful, with numbers dependent on heroin spiralling along with overdose deaths and other harms to individuals and security. 
as society, sorry. And then there's a graph which just shows massive increase up until 2000 to like 16,000 number of the opioid deaths in 2000. Um, this is worth comparing with what happened to drug-related deaths, mainly opioid, in Switzerland after they moved to a health-led approach, including heroin-assisted treatment and safer drug consumption rooms. In 1982, in the United Kingdom, Dr John Marks started prescribing heroin, along with injectable and oral methadone, in the northwest of England as a maintenance approach. It aimed to keep people alive and reduce health and social harms that they were suffering. Was that known as the British model or the British system? They did system call it the or? British system, and yeah. I just said that earlier in that bit about the history. Um, and indeed that was taken as a model, Geoffrey, and used in other places as well. And down south, they had the provision of amphetamines program as well. So it depended on where you were and the right. perspective of the psychiatrist who actually convened the area health service or the right. county health service as to what services were provided. So it was pot that was why it was available. Or, and in fact, John Marks was not sympathetic to heroin users or okay. to cocaine users, but he was actually just a pragmatic man who saw that if we provided heroin or cocaine to people with addiction or maintenance or addiction problems, it would reduce the crime and had the collaboration of the police as well so they didn't stake out the clinics. And he was right. It worked. Right. So that's a, fundamentally that's what the history is about. When the UK opened three successful pilot NHS-supervised injecting clinics in London, Brighton and Darlington in 2009, the randomised injectable opioid treat, opiate treatment pro, <laughs> trial, riot, they were retreading lot ground long established in the UK and elsewhere. The last of the riot clinics shut when the Department of Health withdrew funding in 2016 because of austerity-related cuts. They just don't say that that stuff, cutting things severely like that, has such a flow-on effect. And they've had austerity in the UK oh, virtually ever since. Yes, they? well, absolutely. Well, apparently, falling apart. Depending upon who you are, if you're uh, Boris, no, well, don't he, have to be austere. He, he's quit his seat. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, over the weekend. I think he's got it, some dirt it, on the PM. <laughs> got pushed out quite smugly. Mm. Okay, um, in 2019, hack clinics in Glasgow and Middleborough, Middlesbrough sorry, opened with widespread interest elsewhere in the UK. And this is the crazy thing. Without the history, people just redo the same things again and say, mm. oh, well, we'll have to trial that first. And you just think, for crying out loud, you've already trialled it. You've already done it for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. In January 2021, the Scottish Government announced its intention to roll hat out nationwide. So the Scots actually got on board, remember? We, went, we did an article on that, Geoffrey. That's right, yep. Government, and, uh, for more details on the ration, rationale for and the process involved in opening the Middlesbrough Hat Clinic and its very promising early outcomes, see this presentation by its manager, Daniel, Daniel Ahmed. Now, I'm not going to go further on that because there's much more about it and it's nearly the end, but there's just, 
It might be worth putting that online, Jeffrey. I it think is so. a really interesting article. Well, it goes into some of the positives, like improving people's health. And that's um, what it did. It stopped people using illicit drum. It had markers in it, in the, in the government provided heroin, had markers in it, and it was never um, diverted to the streets, never turned up in other urines. It only, you know, was people only weren't going to give away their. They were not going to give away the <laughs> heroin, cocaine, or amphetamine that they got from the government, and they settled down, got their family ties, became stronger. They reunited with their families and their children. Their um, home lives were settled. Their domestic life, they had a house, somewhere to live. Mm-hmm. They got a job often. If they didn't, they stayed home and used and they weren't a trial to their families. It was just the, the results were so positive that austerity had to be the only reason for retracting the funding or for stopping those programs operating because they were so good. Yeah. So good that Switzerland took up the same model that Britain had been running since 1931 or something in various places, according to the person in charge of the county medical service. At least the Swiss, Swiss have had the good sense to keep it going. Well, their individual cantons are the same sort of thing. We've all got state-based operations, haven't we, and town-based operations. So yep. the potential for that to happen is inevitably going to be there, Jeffrey. Well, we could have had it here in the ACT. And it could have been taken away again just as quickly. Oh, that's true. And yeah. it's something we always have to keep an eye on. You either have to fund something so that it continues to function or don't fund it at all. Don't start because you don't tease don't pretend to fund a service and then underfund it so it can't function. No. I mentioned dim- one final damageable, point. It goes damageable. on about how much this um, heroin-assisted treatment cost. The budget needed to open a pilot will uh, vary depending on a number of factors. Historically, the cost of clinical-grade heroin was 12 to £15 pounds per person, but yeah. that's been reduced to about... 5000 a year. Oh, it was twelve to fifteen thousand pounds per yeah, year. Yeah, but now it's reduced to <laughs> five thousand pounds a year. Yeah, oh, I forgot that a K is a thousand. Yeah, yeah, around two to three times the cost of buprenorphine. Cleveland's heroin-assisted treatment is uh, estimated to be costing around uh, twelve thousand pounds per person annually, with the bulk of the remaining cost. Um, beyond the medication being staffing. Which is always going to be the biggest cost well, of any program is the staffing. Administration, yeah. uh, security, um, yeah. keeping an eye on people. Um, running and, yeah, go on. Uh, do you want to finish it off? Or? Yeah, running and setup costs can be reduced if an existing facility is used, so shared costs for premises, admin and other overheads. The cost of wraparound services like housing, social services and mental health provision are not HAT costs. HAT is just providing a gateway to services that should be being provided anyway to this group. According to the EMCDDA, these costs are similar to those in mainland European countries. The Glasgow HAT Clinic is funded by the NHS, while Middlesbrough is funded by a coalition of the police and crime commissioner probation services, prisons, specialist GP, treatment and health services. Wow. What yeah. a combination. Now, that was the from, from, uh, phenomenal thing about the John Marks Clinic. We actually had the ex-chief of police from that area, that county, come to Australia and say, 
This program is the ants' pants. Wow. We love it. The amount of crime that has gone down in our county is phenomenal. And we now have the opportunity to focus on real criminals. Wow. Not drug users. I'd love just, to hear not that. just users. He was great. But inevitably, an ex-commissioner, mm-hmm. Jeff Reed. Weren't they always ex-commissioners who support those things? Anyway. Very sad. The point was he promoted it. He said it was terrific. And Gabriel Bama, who did the research in Australia, yeah, in did Canberra, she could. Yes. actually supported his visit. Yeah. And uh, so did the harm reduction. Do you want me uh, to play that Who song? Oh, would you please? Uh, have we got time? Su- yeah, we have. Substitute was the Yes, one? please. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is the Who and Substitute. Yeah.
Another oldie but a classic. Uh, from the, the Who, Who yeah. And Substitute. Okay, we're just into the home stretch of this week's news from the drug war front. Uh, brought to you by uh, Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, which is uh, Canberra's peer-based uh, uh, service for drug users in Canberra and also uh, The Connection, which provides the uh, same services for, for First Nations, First Nations people. people yeah. um, I've just got a note here, Hep C testing's back on at Karma. We mentioned that before. Mm. Um, call to make an appointment and ask for either Louise or Dean. And we can also now begin promoting the women's support group for women who are dealing with care and protection. Um, for more information, again, call Karma and ask for Louise or Michelle to discuss um, what what's going on and um, yeah. whether, whether it's appropriate. But anyway, we've crossed a few uh, different lands and um, a real shame about the heroin-assisted treatment. I re- I, Indeed. I read about that and my heart just breaks, you know. it's. it's we think about the amount of work we put into it, Jeffrey. I mean, I remember there's, we just rolled out people after people to help Gabriel with that research. Oh, huge just amount of work. People were happy to contribute to it, yeah. They didn't want to be paid to be interviewed. They just wanted to have input to something like a heroin provision program. Not a trial, a whole program they wanted and we thought we might get one, even though Gabriel had said, don't keep your hopes up. There's no guarantee it'll happen. And sure as eggs, it didn't. And why? Because the politics of the situation. We had a just-say-no Prime Minister at the time. That was the issue, and you can't blame Gabrielle. She did everything no. possible, and she she worked. She was exhausted at the ex- end of that research. They were so thorough, too, mm. Jeffrey. The research they did was so thorough. I remember being on committees with June, you know, with yep. It was just phenomenal. Yeah, no, she was a, a really outstanding researcher. And she was, actually, and really committed to the provision of the program if it could happen, yes. and researching it to make sure it was valid, and making sure that the process yep. of service delivery was as important as the outcome. Yeah, no, she did a very thorough she, job. I was impressed yeah. with her, and she was pretty upset when it. She was devastated. It got pulled. Yeah. Um, I heard her speak uh, a couple well, years later about. How, what, how much of a personal impact it had had. Well, but she was faced with us, Jeffrey. Well, yeah. yeah. She had to put up with the disappointment, and I've said that many a time and often. It's not her that fault. That one of those emotions you can do nothing with is disappointment, especially other people's disappointment. Yeah. And even though we knew it wasn't a promise... We, we all had we our all hopes thought, up. Yeah, yeah. Our hopes were sky high. I thought it was in the bag. yeah. And, in fact, it might have been, had it not been for the change of government. Indeed. All right, that's it for another week. Take care, everyone. Uh, Yeah, we love you. Look Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Yep. Um, Talk to you next week. We'll leave you with Golden Brown. Yay. Texture like sun Lays me down With my mind she runs Throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown With golden brown 
every time, just like the last On her ship, tied to the mast Two distant lands, takes both my hands Never a frown, with golden brown Temptress Through the ages She's heading west From far away Stays for a day Never a frown With a golden brown